0: PFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, while the Democrats work on big bills to really help people, Republicans keep complaining about Hunter Biden. In the House, they've been demanding that the ATF investigate whether Hunter Biden lied on a gun background check form. They say he responded no to a question about drug use. Amy Willens has read Hunter Biden's new memoir, which is about, among other things, his drug use. She'll be here with her analysis. Also, on Sunday night, the Oscar for Best Documentary went to My Octopus Teacher. Our critic, Ella Taylor, will comment on the film. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today as usual at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, we're taping this on Wednesday. Today is the last day of Biden's first 100 days, and tonight he will deliver his first speech to a joint session of Congress. It's about those 100 days and what comes next. For starters, I thought we should talk about our assessment of Biden's 100 days. I think the prevailing view is that he's been the most progressive president and the most effective since FDR, his COVID rescue plan, $1.9 trillion, was hailed by Bernie Sanders as, quote, the most significant piece of legislation to benefit working families in the modern history of this country, close quote. Is that the way you see it? Pretty
1: much. I mean, the one thing we should say about Biden's inaugural period is that it has exceeded expectation. And it certainly exceeded expectation if you're familiar with Joe Biden's long career where he was more or less positioned uh, slightly to the right of the center of the Democratic Party. Now, since Biden is nothing if not a basically a pretty adept Paul, I mean, he was elected to the Senate at age 29 and has held public office ever since, and he's 78 now. Uh, He understands that the Democratic Party has moved well to the left, and he understands that longstanding issues of economic inequality and wage stagnation have been growing worse, and he understands that the COVID pandemic emergency has made a number of things politically possible which weren't politically possible before. Putting all of that together, he has uh, come up with indeed uh, the legislation that Bernie Sanders praised and with uh, two significant follow up pieces of legislation, one of which he'll introduce in his address to the miniature version of the joint session of Congress, dealing with really, I think, the most significant transition to a more social democratic nation than we've seen since Medicare and Medicaid were enacted. In 1965 that's on the plus side and it's look it's a huge plus side
0: well let's talk for a minute about biden's proposed american family plan 1.8 trillion dollars aimed at dramatically expanding access to education and safety net programs for families there's a lot in here what are the most important parts
1: Well, uh, the first is to create two years of preschool, uh, universal pre-K, and two years of community college uh, that's free. Uh, The argument basically being that if you want uh, an American public and an American workforce that's performing at a, a decent level, you need to extend people's free school period. Uh, by four years, two on the front end, two on the back. Uh, and Biden's plan points out that a number of these particulars have been adopted in cities and states, including Republican-run cities and states. So that that's the first part. Second part is for making child care affordable. And it's a plan that would uh, ensure that no one who's making uh, under 150 percent of that state's median income has to pay more than 7% of their income for childcare. And since childcare is dis- a disabling expense and a disabling obligation for many families, uh, that is a, a, a major component. It, it also uh, extends eligibility for the Affordable, uh, Affordable Care Act. It really does quite a number of things that that tilt the nation uh, to do the very things that the private sector just doesn't do and can't do. And then it's all paid for essentially by raising taxes on capital and by raising taxes on the rich, just as his infrastructure plan is paid for by raising taxes on corporations.
0: So if we put all this together, Biden's first 100 days, we've got the COVID relief bill, the infrastructure proposal, the new family support proposal, we've had the vaccine rollout. These are massive triumphs. And we can add to them getting out of Afghanistan, getting back into the Paris Climate Agreement, and just this week, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour for federal contractor employees. All these transcend anything any president has achieved, as Bernie Sanders says, for half a century.
1: Yeah, I mean, the last three Democratic presidents, Carter, Clinton, and Obama, all essentially still governed in the uh, in the age of Ronald Reagan and Milton Friedman. And that age is over. How far Biden can get with these proposals, given the uh, balance, uh, partisan balance in the Senate, uh, remains to be seen.
0: So, His first 100 days have really been magnificent, but, and I guess it's our job to do the buts. Uh, The prospect has a pretty good list of the buts. Here's what's on the prospect list. We have Obamacare subsidies, but only for two years, and mostly they're a federal subsidy for the private insurance industry. Uh, We have a child tax credit, but it's not permanent. Biden has not lowered the Medicare eligibility age. He has not cut the price of drugs by allowing Medicare to negotiate prices like the VA does. He hasn't done anything about student debt cancellation. On vaccine patents, there's been no waiver of intellectual property rights held by Big Pharma, which would permit vaccines to be manufactured in the global south where the need is desperate. Is there any pattern here?
1: Well, I think the pattern is that Biden wants to begin his presidency with broadly popular measures, and uh, the the three biggies—the vaccine uh, distribution, uh, the relief bill, and then now the infrastructure and family uh, care proposals—will be widely popular, even within significant. Portions of the Republican rank and file, uh, not Republican legislators, but the Republican rank and file. By the way, in the plan he's announcing, there is reference to he will do something about the price of prescription drugs. He just hasn't said it yet. And what that suggests to me is they kind of have a timetable for which battles to pick when. And despite the fact that the Senate is a huge obstacle. I think he is leading with what we might call political low-hanging fruit, by which I mean stuff that is widely popular. Now, look, I think negotiating uh, the prices for prescription drugs would be hugely popular too, but there will obviously be a a major pushback from the pharmaceutical companies. And I get the sense that his, his administration wants to do what he's proposing now and then get to a battle with the pharmaceutical companies later. Indeed, it may well be the case that he thinks that will redound so much to his favor politically that he may wait till, uh, you know, next year when the midterm elections are looming to have that fight. We'll see. We'll see.
0: And switching now to California news, while things are going great for Biden in D.C., the campaign to recall Governor Gavin Newsom has succeeded 1.6 million people signed petitions, which puts it on the ballot probably sometime in the fall. Many times on this program, you've pointed out that the only time Republicans have been able to elect a governor since Pete Wilson in the late 90s came when Gray Davis was recalled in 2003 and movie star action hero Arnold Schwarzenegger got elected. That was 18 years ago. And only because of a recall will the Republicans be able to do that again.
1: Well, there are two ways in which uh, the institution of the recall helps Republicans. The first is it avoids a Republican primary. And if there was a Republican primary, no one as moderate as Arnold Schwarzenegger would have been the candidate. It would have been some flaming right-wing nutcase. So that works in their favor. Also, honestly, there is a Republican universe in this state sufficient to mount 1.6 million signatures. They got that there are 40 million people in the state. Uh, Minimum, you know, you're going to get like nine or 10 million people voting in a recall election. It's inconceivable, I think, that Gavin Newsom wouldn't get a a majority uh, voting against the recall and de facto, therefore, for him, given just the partisan balance of power in the state, given the fact that his popularity ratings for all of his miscues are still a good deal higher than Gray Davis's were uh, when his recall came around. And given the fact that the state is opening up and that the kind of niche Republican uh, concerns about masks and things like that are not going to play all that well come uh, when this election is held, which is still many
0: months from now. New topic. The 2020 census figures are out, and they show that the decade that just ended seems to have had the second lowest rate of population growth of any decade except for the 1930s. Why do you think that was? Well, the the decades have a lot in common, mainly
1: uh, economic dislocation, and uh, for some parts of the population, a major depression. Now, in the 30s, the part of the population that experienced the major depression was uh, you know, <laughs> clearly a vast majority of uh, Americans. Over the last 10 years, we've had what's now been called a K-shaped recovery in which uh, the rich do very well and for struggling people in the middle class and working class and the poor, not so well. And young people in particular were impacted by this very slow recovery over the last 10 years. Uh, Most of the jobs open to them were low-paying service sector jobs. Even those with decent jobs had to deal with this student debt loan uh, overhang looming over them. There are all kinds of reasons why young people in the 30s and young people uh, in the teens of this century weren't forming families and having kids. They couldn't afford it. The rent, the childcare, uh, a lot of the things that Joe Biden will be talking about tonight, um, were just increasing at a far faster pace than uh, young people's income. And you know, uh, the income increases of the last 10 years were disproportionately uh, increases on investment income, not on work income. You know, people in their 20s tend not to invest a heck of a lot. And then the converse of all this, the converse in the last hundred years, the decade with the greatest population increase was the 1950s, uh, when we had relatively more broadly shared prosperity than we've ever had before or since, when there was such a thing as a family wage, whereas the wage earner often made enough money to support a spouse and kids when the rate of unionization was more than three times higher than it is today, which was one of the factors behind the fact that there was a family wage. So, you know, economics really does determine, in some sense, the rate of reproduction and and the rate of population growth. The other factor was, in the depths of the early years of uh, the last decade, um, since we weren't generating jobs, uh, immigration greatly declined. And it declined even more than the second half of the decade when uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, put up all kinds of barriers to immigration. So a confluence of factors led to really record slow growth of population in this country.
0: And if you want to read more about this, Harold has a wonderful piece at prospect.org with the fantastic title, Census and Sensibility. Read it at prospect.org couple minutes uh, left here. I just want to make two interesting historical points here. We're broadcasting on Thursday. It's April 29th. On this day in 1992, the L.A. cops who beat Rodney King, and we saw it all on video, were acquitted. And the five-day L.A. uprising began. I note that this year... Derek Chauvin, Minneapolis police officer, was convicted of murdering George Floyd. And tomorrow, Friday, April 30th, on this day in 1970, U.S. troops crossed the border into Cambodia, expanding the war in Vietnam, which continued then for another five years, despite the biggest protests in American history up to that point. I note that Joe Biden has promised to withdraw the final American forces from Afghanistan uh, shortly. So dare I say things are getting better in America?
1: Slowly, selectively, and let's hope uh, we can get stuff through the Senate, in which case we need to qualify
0: this less than we do now. And one last thing. I heard on Fox News that Joe Biden, as part of his climate crisis actions, will be restricting people to one burger per month. Is this true? Uh, The short answer is no. No. The so-called
1: war on hamburgers is a uh, right-wing distraction. And, and in some ways, most significantly, it enables them to focus on why they oppose all the good, popular things that Joe Biden will be uh, will be trotting out. So, uh, you know, they've they've risen to the challenge by manufacturing unpopular things that, in fact, he does not support.
0: Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold Always great to have you on the show. And always
1: great to be here, John.
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about Hunter Biden. Of course, he was the target of a massive Republican attack campaign for more than a year leading up to the election. And at the same time, the gossip pages seized on his disastrous private life. They made the most of his decades of alcohol addiction and drug abuse and also his acrimonious divorce from his first wife and his subsequent affair with the widow of his brother. Now he's written a book. It's called Beautiful Things, A Memoir. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. It's a new season of the children's hour. This time, we're not talking about Ivanka or Jared or Don Jr. or little Eric. This time, it's about Hunter and his dead brother, Bo. Amy has written extensively about the Middle East, California, and the Trump family. She's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem Bureau Chief of The New Yorker magazine. She's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow, and she teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. We reached her today at home in Los Angeles. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, Hunter Biden's book, Beautiful Things, is what a lot of reviewers are calling a redemption narrative, a story of trauma and failure with a happy ending. The Triumph of Love Over Adversity. Is that the best way to describe this book? I don't think that's the best way
2: to describe it. It's awfully kind, though. I would describe it as an attempt by Hunter Biden to seize the narrative of his disasters and to turn them into a kind of inoculation for himself and his family and his father, the president of the United States, uh, against future allegations, et cetera, about all of his nastiness and um, sad, sick behaviors.
0: Well, uh, let's start with the traumas. He and his older brother, Bo, were in the car when their mother and baby sister were killed. How old were the boys? Hunter was three and Bo was five. And what does he say about that in the book?
2: He just remembers seeing his mother turn her head and then... um, His brother hurtling through the air toward him Mm. and nothing, nothing else. But apparently uh, Bo's leg was broken and Hunter sustained some head injuries and Naomi, the little baby girl, was killed. And so was the mother, Neely.
0: This obviously has to have been, can we call it, a formative experience for a three-year-old.
2: Oh, yeah. And his father had just been elected to the United States Senate, I believe, for his first term. He was about to be sworn in. And uh, of course, it was a giant tragedy. And uh, Joe Biden was a young, handsome senator. You know, it was a real story, tabloid story, this terrible car accident in which a child was killed and other children were injured. And Joe Biden (laughs) was worried about his sons. And he went and had his swearing in ceremony in their hospital room. Filmed for television, I believe.
0: And then the other big trauma uh, in Hunter's life was that his older brother, Bo, died of a brain tumor in 2015. He was only 46. I understand there's a lot about Bo in Hunter's book.
2: There's a lot about Bo. But it's interesting about Bo's death because, I mean, it's like a continuation of the car accident. That's how I felt about it. Like, and now Bo's going to die? So it's a hideous thing, and there's a lot about Bo in the book and and Hunter's connection to Bo and how they were always Bo and Hunt, and everybody thought of them together as they were growing up. And you wonder if that's true or not. He describes very um, clearly uh, how Bo was always more successful, Bo was handsome, Bo was the life of the party, Bo didn't drink till he was legally allowed to drink, supposedly. Oh, Bo was a poet. I mean, Bo was everything.
0: And Bo was named after his father. Bo
2: is is Joe Biden the third, Joseph Robinette Biden the third. So I mean, there was a connection, and I think Bo was the the wonder child and the darling boy of the family. And Hunter was more difficult, than probably given the way Hunter behaves in his own <laughs> memoir. He was probably difficult before the memoir even begins. I mean, he was probably a difficult teenager. He was caught doing, you know, the usual teenage bad things. And Bo wasn't caught anyway.
0: You talk about something you call the Biden tragedy machine.
2: That's slightly icky feeling you can get that the Biden tragedy machine causes when, uh, Joe Biden gets tears in his eyes and starts talking about Bo and then about how he empathizes. And it's like uh, it's like the Kennedy machine, except the Biden tragedies. You know, they seem Hunter's tragedy is self-inflicted and it's not an assassin coming out of the woodwork. And even the car crash is not some terrible act toward them as Biden's. They just keep having tragedies. Um, But the tragedy machine is the one that keeps bringing up these tragedies, the car accident and Bo's death, especially as for for Joe Biden, the second, that is the president. It's a useful tool for him. I I have no doubt that he's sincere about his sadness over his son's death and his first wife's death, but he uses it as a way to connect all the time over and over. Bo is a trope. For him And Bo is a trope for Hunter used in a very different way as a sort of excuse, the death of this beloved, adored brother and his helpmeet. I mean, they're like lovers, truly, in the book and how that just took the stuffing right out of Hunter. And that's why all this disaster has happened. And he says over and over, it wasn't Bo's fault and it's not the fault of Bo's death. But, you know, he's still churning and churning the death of Bo throughout.
0: One of the big scandals of Hunter's life is his affair with the widow of his brother. What does he say about that?
2: Well, he says what you would expect that um, this great light of their lives was taken from both of them. And they turned to each other for sustenance and support, fell in love. But then it didn't work. He wanted to be there for her kids. His uh, I think a nephew and a niece, but it didn't work. He turned back to drugs. She couldn't live with him anymore. You know, it's a very sad story and there may be more complications than we know.
0: Of course, we all want to know what he says about Burisma, the Ukrainian oil and gas company that was headed by a corrupt oligarch hunter. Just to remind our listeners took a high paying job on the board of Burisma when his father was vice president. And Trump and the Republicans said that Hunter somehow got his father to help stop a Ukrainian investigation into the corrupt oligarch who headed Burisma. This is ridiculous. If anything, it was the opposite. And also ridiculous was Trump's other charge that Ukraine interfered in the 2016 election. And then, of course, Congress impeached Trump for abuse of power, for the phone call where he tried to get the president of Ukraine to open an investigation into Burisma and Hunter Biden, which Trump then would have used in the 2020 campaign. Now, we can all agree it was a bad idea for Hunter to take a high-paying job working for an oligarch of a Ukrainian.
2: Unthinkable (laughs) that the family permitted that, especially Joe Biden with his interest in becoming president, his repeated interest in becoming president. Hunter says that he was supremely qualified for the job. He cites all of his work in finance, etc. cetera. He has a Yale law degree, which to me is impressive. Um, but, you know, his name was Biden then when he got into Yale and his name was Biden when he worked for Burisma. And uh, and it's hard to avoid that for a person who has a sort of celebrity dad. But he takes about 13 pages to tell you why everything at Burisma was okay,
0: And he insists that there was no criminal activity. Oh,
2: criminal activity. I believe that, although you could argue that there is a side of Hunter Biden that is not entirely integrated the way a grown up should be and possibly a little bit criminal leaning since (laughs) he lives in the dark underbelly of, of America in many ways
0: past tense, please. He did live live. before he was redeemed by the love
2: (laughs) for a long time in the dark underbelly of America.
0: And the other thing that's been in the news so much is, is the laptop. Uh, Fox News is still talking about the laptop. Hunter supposedly forgot to pick up his laptop from a Delaware repair shop. What, what do we need to know about this?
2: I just have to say, Woody Allen supposedly forgot to take the Polaroid photos off the mantelpiece when Mia Farrow was visiting. So Hunter forgot. These are like terribly destructive, self-destructive acts. You don't do that. But he was maybe not in a state to remember his laptop or maybe it's totally invented. I don't know. But I've looked carefully, as I often do, at the Daily Mail (laughs) <laughs> that's where the story seems to be originating. And then the New York post under Rupert Murdoch has taken it up big time Fox news. It's very well done fake if
0: it's a fake. And what is it that they show on Fox news from the laptop?
2: Many, many things, John, uh, not all of them good for family listening. <laughs> Uh, But there is a video of supposedly Hunter supposedly receiving sexual favors from a supposed prostitute while smoking supposedly crack. Could be him.
0: You've said this book is a defuser. What does that mean?
2: It's meant to diffuse whatever attacks are coming next against Hunter Biden. I have to believe this was looked at by Biden, Joe Biden's people before it was published. So, I mean, I think it's a tool to, um, to stop the hunter derailment and, uh, you know, to put all the interesting stuff in one place and let it be hunters, uh, not the media's, and certainly not Fox, Fox News, but the laptop is a problem.
0: So you call it a diffuser. They call it a tell-all.
2: To tell all, you have to tell all. (laughs) I, I mean, okay, maybe it tells all. I mean, it tells a lot of detail about drug abuse. And I felt as I was reading it, whoa, this is reminding me of some work of literature, Hunter Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, You know, taking the drugs out, going downtown, going to Skid Row. He doesn't even know the name of Skid Row. He just keeps going down there and he into tents to get drugs. And he just does amazingly depraved, low-down things in the book, But it's not all there because there's more. Like, and I can understand, he has three pretty much grown daughters and a new baby boy, and he may not want to talk about to prostitutes. You know, that's entirely possible. prostitutes he saw while he was still married to their mother, the, the girl's mother. It's, I think that's very hard. So even in a tell-all, most people don't tell all. But most people haven't left a laptop, if it's true, in a Delaware repair shop
0: for Fox News to find. Maureen Dowd in The New York Times described the book as, quote, ineffably sad and beautifully written. But a different Maureen, Maureen Callahan, in a different New York newspaper, The New York Post, said Hunter Biden whitewashes just about everything in his book. Which description is better?
2: let's put the two in a blender. I think they're it's both true. I don't think it's beautifully written. I mean, there are tender moments, definitely. And I got tears in my eyes over Bo, which is one of the things it's meant to do. And what a writer should do is do what he means to do. So yeah, I got tears in my eyes over Bo's death. But it's written like a bestseller. It's a little bit like a step above a bestseller in the writing. But there's no paragraph that is more than three sentences long or a sentence that's more than two lines long. I mean, it's not a complicated book of great craftsmanship and and uh, profound thought. And I, I, to me, it's not a book of redemption, a redemptive story. No, it's a sad story of a substance abuser. His, his next wife, after Kathleen says to him, and he says this in the car, he thinks he's going to get back together. He's such a typical substance abuser oh, now we'll get back together because I've been in rehab. And she goes, I will never forgive you. You don't know why, really, because we don't know enough about them. Go to the laptop. So there's that kind of thing, but he doesn't redeem himself. And the next wife is a person introduced to him by friends from the Chateau Marmont, where he racks up, I mean, enormous bills that you can't believe he's so irresponsible to have done.
0: The Chateau Marmont is a... Los Angeles hotel frequented by celebrities known for its bungalows and the misconduct that goes on in the bungalows. The
2: privacy of the bungalow. Yes. But he was even kicked out of the Chateau Marmont among many, many other hotels, Hunter Biden. So at the end, he marries this girl. So she's introduced to him by friends. We have no idea who she is. She's a South African filmmaker. Those are air quotes of mine, but she made some films and, um, She just takes him in hand. And six days later, after having met her, they get married. So uh, I don't call that lover redemption. I call that a desperate need for someone to take care of him and keep him on the straight and narrow while his father is president. We just don't want to find Hunter Biden where he could be found in the inn, which is in a cheap motel room with uh, vials of stuff around him. We don't want that, but it doesn't feel like he's beyond it.
0: So that takes me to the last, my last question, the title, Beautiful Things. Obviously, this is not a reference to what he calls smoking crack around the clock at the bungalows at the Chateau Marmont. What does the title mean? It's a
2: reference to a quote from Beau. Beau, Beau and Hunter like to talk about beautiful things. Beau, Beau made up the the phrase, the beautiful things in nature and all the beautiful things around them and how lucky they were to be alive. and and uh, there's a very moving scene where Bo is really in bad shape from the cancer. And, you know, his mind is going and he has trouble speaking. And And he and Hunter are sitting out on some porch looking out at beautiful nature. And Hunter, uh, Bo seems to point to a watch on on Hunter's wrist. And then there's a whole long story about a watch that Bo took from his dad a long time ago, and then he lost it. He could never find it. He's always been obsessed about it. So Hunter says, oh, yeah, the watch, this one looks like dad's. And and um, and then Bo goes, no, not the watch, he says, he says the beautiful things. And he tries to gesture out toward this landscape that they're looking
0: at. You know, it's very sad. It's very sad. This has been another episode of the Children's Hour with Amy Willens. Stories about sons of presidents, whoever they happen to be. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. And now it's time to talk about film and TV. The Oscar for Best Feature Length Documentary went to My Octopus Teacher. For comment, we turn, of course, to Ella Taylor, longtime critic for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, and other places. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back.
3: Thank you, John. Glad to be here.
0: Well, My Octopus Teacher, it's on Netflix. I resisted it for a while, mostly because I thought the title was kind of annoying, but I finally did watch it. I thought it was an amazing and a wonderful film. What did you think? not <laughs> okay.
3: Um, you know it's it's very charming uh, up to a point I, I also watched it uh, rather late in the day and I'm noticing as I did that um huge swaths of the public adore it <laughs> huge swaths of the critical community does not <laughs> it's directed by Pippa Ehrlich and and uh, James Reed, but um, it's it centers on a filmmaker named Craig Foster, who is a South African, who had reached some kind of troubled point in his life. And I do give him props for not saying what that was so that we can focus, focus on the mollusk instead. <laughs> um, and he's an experienced uh, diver, um, but he seemed to have been somewhat stalled in his life. So he started... Free diving, which I, I gather means just putting on your swimsuit and flippers and going down and keep and coming up frequently to breathe, in a particular spot, in the same spot, in in a South African uh, location, and uh, he makes friends with an octopus that he finds in its den, uh, in her den, because he names her Rosetta. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> under a rock, and they become pals, at least according to him, the nicest parts of the movie. And I, I was charmed by it for a little while until I realized that although he's a very good anthropologist, um, he also becomes a very good anthropomorphizer yes, <laughs> all I, of the film. Yes. Because he attributes all kinds of human responses to the octopus uh, to the point that it actually becomes faintly ridiculous. And uh, we have to keep in mind that we are talking about a mollusk uh, to whom he attributes among other uh, human qualities a capacity for self-sacrifice. Why? Because she gives birth late in the movie and then this is an acceptable spoiler, I think promptly expires. Now, that is what octopi do
0: (laughs) and have done for millions of years
3: as he points out, um, but uh, self-sacrifice is not the word. She is obeying her, you know, instincts that have been learned uh, over thousands of years and presumably uh, her genus as well. So the conclusion that he draws is that she's taught him all kinds of things like playfulness, um, adaptability to dangerous conditions, patience, resilience, joy, acceptance that all things must pass. Uh, But he neglects to mention, although we do see it visually, that she's also a very gifted predator, (laughs) which is also what she's supposed to be doing um, in order to uh, survive. And towards the end, they share what he calls a hug. And for all I know, may well be a hug just because she's gotten used to his presence. I mean, he goes down about 20 times a day, uh, comes up again and immediately goes down again to meet her. So um, my question for, I mean, it's visually lovely. Uh, It's uh, shot by, uh, obviously, anybody who's seen it will know that there must have been an additional photographer there. He couldn't have done it himself. Uh, A man named Roger Horrocks, who's an underwater cinematographer and it's just beautiful. Um, Not only the octopus's many uh, disguises and they certainly are pretty ingenious. But it made me ask, you know, what do we mean by calling a mollusk intelligent? What do we mean by calling it playful? Uh, what does it mean by creative thinking, which he attributes to the octopus? And of course, you know, what do we mean by uh, calling a mollusk self-sacrificing? So for me, um, the film, in order to be a crowd pleaser, which it undoubtedly has become, has sacrificed a good deal of um, what is now accepted knowledge amongst people who studies these things is that rule number, indeed any anthropologist, actually, who goes to another culture, we would expect that anthropologist not to interpret the life of that community by his own standards or hers. So, why would you do it with, uh, with the sea creature world anyway? So, those were my major objections. I don't Well,
0: yes, I'm smiling and, and nodding here, uh, especially about the anthropomorphizing. He does tell us octopi are solitary. They do not make friends with each other. They live alone under a rock. They have sex once and then they die. So it's surprising that one of them would decide to become, quote, friends with a human because friendship is not their thing. But the people who study octopi, I, there's, I have a friend at UC Irvine who knows this world a bit. And he says they are completely fascinating and they are considered to be truly a form of alien intelligence. They have extremely advanced nervous systems, which are Nothing like mammals, primates, or humans. Apes and chimps have brains sort of like ours. Dolphins and whales have brains sort of like ours. Octopi have what's called a distributed nervous system where most of their neurons are in their arms. And uh, they don't have brains. And that makes the idea of friendship uh, even more absurd. (laughs) I was going to say problematic. (laughs) And then, of course, there are many kinds of octopi. The the octopi on the Atlantic coast of of South Africa are little ones. This one is about a foot long. The Pacific octopus that we have here along the California coast grows up to be 14 feet long. Would you like to be friends with that one?
3: (laughs) No, but I have become very good friends with some octopi that appear in my local Italian restaurant. <laughs> in fact, I've I've become such good friends with them that I eat them.
0: Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Having seen this movie, because you know they 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 do have this kind of alien intelligence, but as you say, mostly they use their intelligence for predation, for killing other animals, and for avoiding being killed by the horrible pajama sharks which provide the suspense in this movie. I was a little surprised that a documentary about undersea life in 2020 doesn't say anything about pollution of the oceans, which affect octopi along with many other creatures around the world. The only threat to this octopus is the pajama shark who lives nearby. And of course, that's nothing new. Sharks have been predators of octopi for, I look this up, hundreds of millions of years. So this film really is about how gorgeous and visually splendid the shallow coastal waters of South Africa are. I see what you mean but still it's it's such an amazing spectacle to watch this and um and to think about this alien intelligence that lives a life of complete isolation.
3: Don't you think it would have been just as spectacular to to watch this without being folded into a rather cheesy narrative?
0: <laughs> <thing>? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So he had thousands of hours of footage, and he didn't know how to turn this into a film. So they hired a screenwriter to create a narrative. And the narrative, they decided, would be about him, his problems, and how the octopus taught him, you know, these lessons.
3: Yes, and uh, that may be one reason why Craig Foster looks so nervous throughout uh, <laughs> when he appears on the thing, is because he may be saying... What on earth are they making me say here? I don't, know. I
0: don't know. Um, well, let's let's talk about the uh, the the Academy Awards last Sunday. The whole thing was set up for a grand finale, where a black man was supposed to win Best Actor. Sure, everybody's heard when the envelope was opened, Chadwick Boseman did not win for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Instead. Turns out the members voted for Anthony Hopkins for his performance in The Father. So a white man won again, and that was the end of the show. And there was a lot of unhappiness, especially on Twitter, about this. What did you think?
3: To be honest, I would be happy with either Anthony Hopkins, who I think gave a miraculous performance. Uh, You know, the film is... Fine, uh, but his performance was certainly outstanding, especially for a man of 83. You know, to go through the the enormous range um, that a man with with on incipient dementia goes through, I would have been equally happy with uh, Chadwick Boseman um, or Stephen Yeun, who made uh, uh, who was the actor in. Um, Minari I gather I gather is the correct pronunciation Minari is, is what I thought it was Hopkins was not present he was in Wales um actually and he did film a segment the following day from beside his father's grave I might I might say um, and uh, logically it would have been logical for his co-star Olivia Coleman to accept the award but uh, Academy rules say so it had to be somebody you know, producer or somebody who was um, uh, in the making of the film. And I think that part of the reason people were outraged because of that, because actually Hopkins was asleep at the time, um, is, you know, Wales is eight <laughs> hours ahead. Uh, so I think in that sense, it was a fuss about nothing. But I will say that the family of Chadwick Bozeman has now come out and said, and said we understand completely. And, and we think that, that uh, Hopkins was a very honorable choice as well. Yeah. Um, can we return to the octopus? Uh, <laughs> certainly. <oldest> certainly. <laughs>
0: always, always happy to talk about you know, the mollusk, as you call mollusk,
3: it. The mollusk, yes. <laughs> it was, it's such a lovely word. I keep saying it out loud, mollusk. Um, which is that although I expected it to win Best Documentary, I was absolutely mortified that it did because um, the lineup was of, conten- of other contenders, especially two, um, which we've covered on this show, Collective um, and uh, Time would have been far more worthy choices just at the level of filmmaking.
0: And remind us which what those were about.
3: Collective was the documentary um, about a, a signal failure of the uh, Romanian health system to cope with a nightclub uh, fire. And Time is an account, um, is really a kind of, Compilation is too weak a word, but it's a sort of artistic um, composite of the video diary of the wife of a a long-term prisoner. Uh, we covered both those uh, on the show, and they're both absolutely terrific at, at every level of filmmaking, uh, including, you know, the politics uh, of them. So uh, I was very disappointed to be uh, for that things went exactly as I expected in the documentary. Um, I also want to say that I did not see the show. Um, this is partly because I was out socialising for the first time, and that seemed to me... Infinitely preferable, but also because I believe that that the Oscars are pretty much like uh, is a campaign, like a political campaign, that so much depends on who has enough dough to um, to raise money for uh, for financing the the advanced publicity, and um, and I think people who don't win on the night should bear that in mind. Is it, it very often is that, and it's you know. It's it's making use of the materials available. There were loads of absolutely terrific films this year. Having said that, um, it was definitely a banner year for filmmakers of color. Um, Chloe Zhao won uh, for uh, Nomad Land. Um, and uh, uh, Isaac Chung, uh, who made uh, Minari, took away one award. I can't remember what it was, but uh, they they took an award. Um, I think it should have got much more notice than it did. Um, another film that I think absolutely should have been present there is The White Tiger, which is the uh, Indian film um about a, a a young indian who buys the the dominant ideology and becomes a driver for a very wealthy um young man uh and also the other i think um one that i the other film that i think should have won an award of some kind is news of the world if only because it's a, just a beautiful looking um film about in which tom hanks plays a Civil War um, Confederate captain who uh, ushers a little girl across uh, back to her relatives only to discover that they don't want her and she doesn't want them either. So that, that I think was a a mistake. So I watched the highlights because I usually watch the Oscars for the frocks. Um, And and there were some pretty splendid frocks this year, as well as some rather ridiculous ones. Um, But uh, overall, you know, if you like, I can tell you which I think should have won in, in the big categories. (laughs) Um, Please
0: go right ahead.
3: Okay, well, Best Actress, um, Frances McDormand won, as as most people know. And while she gave a perfectly fine performance, my general view of Frances McDormand now is that she's extremely good playing the same part over and over and over again as this person with the who's. Uh, blunt to a fault and uh, has a kind of working class grit to her. Um, It has a lot of sort of vacant uh, expressions and she does all this very well, but her range is extremely narrow. So I would have gone for either uh, of the other, uh, from the other nominees, uh, Viola Davis for absolutely magnificent performances in in uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, or Vanessa Kirby uh, into, in, I believe it's called I'm Your Woman, um, who plays a, um, a pregnant woman in Trouble. She was also Princess Margaret in, in The Crown and she's really a, a terrific actress. Um, and uh, in Supporting actresses, this was the great delight of the show, I think, was uh, well, Yuen Ye- Ye- Ye-Yung, I hope I've pronounced the name right, um, uh one for the uh, grandmother in Meanery. she's hilarious on screen and she's just as hilarious off screen and, and her encounter with Brad Pitt was uh, completely beguiling i thought so that one went well um in international films another round was a perfectly okay moving but again movie but again um, and I have not seen one of the uh, contenders, which is apparently a very strong movie, Quo Vadis Aida, which hopefully we'll cover in another um, uh, podcast and uh, another show, but also up for international um feature was collective which had two nominations and i've said my say about that but also one we covered recently on the show which is the man who sold his skin which i think is, a, is just a wonderful film on on every level including the visual um for best director, Chloe Zhao won, but I think I would have gone for Lee Isaac Chung for Minari, which I think is, uh, you know, a superior piece, much more um, less obtrusive and showy, but uh, um, much better directing. Um, for supporting actor, Daniel Kaluuya won for Judas and the Black Messiah, and it certainly was well deserved, but. I really felt bad for his mother, who, <laughs> when he made his comment that his parents had sex, and she was completely mortified by this. The camera stayed on her uh, and his sister there, uh, but it was a great performance. I think I would have gone personally for Leslie Odom Jr.'s wonderful performance as Sam Cook uh, in One Night in in Miami. It, was, it plays him as a perfect foil for the other characters there. And I thought it was just a brilliant performance. Original screenplay went to Emerald Fennel for the British uh, director and actress for Promising Young Woman. And I did not think that it was a perfectly fine movie. I enjoyed it. It was challenging. It was a very good start for her. But I would have gone either for... One Night in Miami or Minery for original screenplay. They were more skilled, more subtle in every way. For adapted screenplay, the father won. And and although that is a perfectly acceptable choice, I would have gone for the White Tiger there, which I thought had an outstanding screenplay. The only other film that I think should have made it in for something is another one that we've covered on the show called uh, almost a year ago, I think it is, uh, True History of the Kelly Gang, um, which is a terrific film about the the Kelly Gang. And it would have, for, for, in my book, would have won for so many things cinematography, screenplay for sure. And uh, possibly directing, but it's not the kind of movie that tends to win Oscars. And I think that is, you know, our problem. More films by women, for sure, this year. uh, More by uh, people of color, but uh, certainly um, mostly uh, black people. A small Asian presence and no no Native American presence
0: at all. We have time for one more quick recommendation.
3: Yes, this is a, a wonderful Swiss um, satire of a Bu named nature called My Wonderful Wonder, which is about a, a young Polish woman who's trying to raise money for her kids who inserts herself. It works for a wealthy bourgeois family on a fancy lake. All kinds of chaos results. Um, there are cows involved. Uh, and she's both a disruptor and a healer. I found it both charming and uh, pointed and uh, you can find it either at the Royal or the Town Centre 5 if you want to go see it locally or Kino Marquee if you you're pony up for a ticket virtually
0: Our critic is Ella Taylor Ella, thanks for talking with us today
3: Thanks for letting me gas on, John <laughs> <laughs>
0: for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo.